0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Liz Kislick about how conflict-averse leaders can deal with conflict responsibly. Liz Kislik, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: I'm so glad to be with you.
0: Yeah, Liz, it's a pleasure to meet you and to have an opportunity to have a really great conversation with you. Today, we're going to be focusing on conflict and how conflict-averse leaders can deal with conflict responsibly in the workplace and and other related issues connected to conflict and communicating um, difficult information uh, to those we work with. Uh, As we get started, I just wanted to share Liz's bio with everybody. Liz Kislik is a management consultant an executive coach and a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Her TEDx Why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it has been viewed more than 200,000 times. She specializes in developing high-performance leaders and workforces and for 30 years has helped family-run businesses, national nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies like American Express, Girl Scouts, Staples, uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Highlights for Children solve their thorniest problems. And I could really go on and on with Liz's background, um, such an accomplished career and and so many great things that you are doing. Um, Before we really launch into the conversation, anything else you would like to share with listeners uh, by way of personal background, context, or anything to shape and frame this, this discussion today?
1: I guess what I would say is that part of why organizations sometimes need an outsider is because they don't know how to deal with conflict. It's hanging around, people feel bad, it gets in the way of the work. And if leaders really felt comfortable, they would just work through conflicts together. It's a normal part of life, often a very healthy part of life. Um, But when they get stuck, and avoid and then the thing builds up, that's often a good time to have a dispassionate view from the outside, come in, take a look around and figure out what to do. So that's what I've been doing for a long time.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really great. And you're absolutely right that I, I don't think anyone wants to be in a workplace with lots of conflict or, or shall I say at least unhealthy conflict. Um, most people want to, to work well with each other. Um, they thrive when there's cooperation and collaboration and good relationships, yet conflict is, is really just part of the deal. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just natural. It's part of the human condition uh, and it arises even when you have the most motivated, um, driven and uh, understanding and intentional types of people. You have well-meaning, um, intelligent people who just will end up disagreeing about things and that can end up leading to conflict, even when there's there are good relationships and, and people do trust each other and they do respect each other. It's just part of the deal. Um, so I guess the question is, should we be uh, trying to rid ourselves of conflict in the workplace? And if not, what should we be doing to drive more healthy forms of of conflict and what do we do when unhealthy conflict starts to emerge?
1: Okay, that's a very big question. So let me um, pull some of that apart and then you'll remind me in the middle. So the first thing is we need conflict in the sense that if we all thought the same way, it would be a kind of groupthink situation. Um, I'm going to stereotype wildly, but say you are dealing with salespeople and engineers. If everybody thinks like an engineer, there will be a whole bunch of sales that never get made. And if everybody thinks like a salesperson, you may have some quality issues by the end of the day. So we need to be different because there are different jobs and expecting that everybody will agree all the time, it would be hard to have innovation, it would be hard to really take care of customers who have different needs. It's actually important that there be different points of view so that we can think rigorously about what would be best in every case. it, and Actually, it's more interesting, even if the conflict is really minor, like what are we going to have for lunch? You don't always want the same thing, and you don't always want the same people to have the final say. There's value to mixing it up. So the thing is not to be terrified by it or to think that differences in, opi- in opinion – even in strong views means that anybody is bad or wrong. Often, the different views are perfectly correct from the different perspectives. And the thing is to be able to sort of walk around the room or the conference table and actually see what the world looks like from everybody's point of view. Because when you really understand what they're facing, it broadens your own perspective, and then you can trade back and forth and it doesn't feel like a fight. I think the the thing that's really scary is when we feel like we'll be fighting because then we're afraid we have something to lose.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that that we need diversity in the workplace. We need diversity of thought. We can't allow ourselves to fall victim to groupthink or, as leaders, it's really common and easy to fall into the trap of having this bubble around us uh, where we're surrounded by people who want to please us. They want, um, they want us to be happy with them. And so, the, the yes men phenomenon, the sycophant phenomenon, whether we as leaders want that or not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, uh, it's super common. And unless we take proactive steps to counteract it, it, it usually will emerge. Um, it's just the nature of the way power differentials work and how organizations work. And so we need to proactively seek out cognitive diversity, uh, and, and share, you know, diverse ways of thinking am- amongst our team so that we can get to better, uh, answers. And that necessarily brings with it, you know, that the type of disagreement, difference of opinion that you are describing Absolutely, that's gonna be the case uh, because people are gonna be passionate. If you have good people, they're gonna be passionate uh, about their work and they're gonna be passionate about their ideas and they're gonna be bringing their own expertise to the table. Of course, people aren't always going to agree. So that then of course does bring that level of uh, potential disagreement. Um, So the first thing I think is just that we need to be able to frame it for what it is and it's not negative in and of itself right in right. in fact, quite the opposite. it, it can be very positive, but right. then it gets it gets to my my huge question that I asked you, which was really like a triple stooled question right so then we we get into well okay, so what what does healthy conflict look like? What does unhealthy conflict look like? And if we have that unhealthy conflict emerge where we don 't actually know how to deal with the, that difference, um, that 's where the real problem is. So how do we go about counteracting that
1: good so. The first thing about healthy conflict, and you don't even have to call it conflict when it's the healthy kind, is for the leader to make clear that they're counting on team members to put on the table whatever needs to be said. I mean, one of the worst things it seems to me is if people are so eager to please that they don't make you aware of the beginning of a problem. They think, oh, I'll just take care of it myself or it's not such a big deal. They don't want to upset you. In a weird way, the more your team loves you, you are at as much risk for not understanding what's really going on as someone whose team is afraid. So don't think that because you have fabulous relationships, that's good enough. Often, They want to protect you. They know you're busy. They know you're stressed. They want it to be smooth and wonderful for you and they wanna be heroes for you. So they may not tell you at the beginning when you could actually do something about a problem. So you need this kind of phase zero in which you are establishing as a norm that you wanna be aware of things that go wrong. I mean, not the tiniest, little things, not we ran out of coffee and somebody has to get some more. Um, But actual problems that affect the work, number one. And two, opportunities to make things better. And opportunities to make things better almost always mean a change in state in some way. And if people get comfortable with the idea that it's the right thing to talk about potential change they get more experienced in bringing different ideas to the table before it feels like a fight. So if that's the norm, part of how you work toward that is you ask good leading questions. You have to know enough about everybody's area to be able to ask smart, curious questions and not just ask for the standard reporting that happens every week or those kinds of operations meetings, I don't know if you've been in these, where everybody gives the exact same report every week. You know, the numbers vary by a decimal point, but there's no real exchange of information. So it has to be clear that you want to know. That means making yourself curious first, and second of all, making yourself just a little impervious because you don't want to be the first person to respond all the time when people are sharing information. Because if you respond, everybody else will get quiet and your opinion rules. So you could ask leading questions. Tell me how such and such happened or how did we get to this point? And you'll notice that both of those questions were how questions. They weren't why questions, very often, not all the time, but very often a why question can sound accusatory or like there's an assumption somewhere that something went wrong. Why did you do it that way? Just sounds really different from, tell me how you went about making that happen. Ask for the story. It can be exhausting to get the stories, but you've got to get people used to sharing them. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to say things like, oh, that's so interesting, tell me more about that. Or that's so interesting, what other experiences have the rest of you had? Opening the discussion further, as opposed to giving your judgment. Your judgment actually closes discussion. The other thing that closes discussion is a bad expression on your face. We often don't know what our faces are doing. Um, I'm laughing because it's so common. I work with one leader. He does this raised eyebrow thing. One eyebrow goes up and everybody in the room sort of takes a step back. What is he thinking? Are we in trouble? That's really risky. He hasn't learned to manage his eyebrow. Um, another.
0: Scene. I, I just I just have to comment on that one. That that is so funny, and it's it, it totally resonates uh, with me in my home life, uh, because my wife my wife tells me that you know I have I have certain expressions that she knows like when I make those expressions, she reads a lot into them, and uh, you know I you know if I'm trying to have a, just an open conversation you know, I'm not trying to insert myself or assert my own position, but just the facial expression. So so that really does matter. And it, it's interesting, um, you know, nowadays amidst COVID and all of the Zoom meetings, I've actually found that in some ways to be a little helpful because I can, it, while it's exhausting to be on Zoom meetings all the time, um, one of the benefits is that I can be a little bit more self-aware about my facial expressions as I'm talking to people. And I, you know, because w- whether I like it or not, my, my, uh, ugly mug is staring right back at me on the screen, you know, the whole time. And I, I'm not, uh, I don't have that benefit when I'm in a meeting in a room with other people usually. Right. So you're absolutely right. We need to watch what we say. We need to not assert ourselves so that people, so we don't shut down the conversation, but those nonverbals you know, body language and facial expressions, just so, so important as well.
1: Yeah. I have a client who um, really liked decisiveness. And if somebody went on too long, he starts checking his watch. That's a great way to shut somebody down too.
0: and work. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities, and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. I'm excited to share my insights with you.
1: One of the interesting things about conflict and that's whether you're the leader or a participant in it. Managing your body is actually really important because as soon as we feel at all under threat, and threat can just be that somebody doesn't like what we said or a disagreement. It's not that they're coming at us with a knife. It's a conversation. But as soon as we feel under threat, the back of your neck tightens, you hunch a little, You might cross your arms. There are all kinds of things we do without even realizing it. And everybody else's animal nature sees that and they get tense right away too. Mirror neurons fire the level, the temperature in the room. It just goes up a notch and everybody thinks, is this danger or not? So if you can feel that you are starting to react you need habits, tricks to cool yourself down fast, or you need the equivalent of coded language. Oh, that must've been an exciting comment because I could feel myself getting revved up. Let me pause for a second and think about that. That will feel unnatural in the beginning but it is so useful over time. And if you share with your team what you're actually thinking in that way, they will calm down and start to learn that they can do that too. Uh, Other language that can be helpful, ask your team to tell you. This is language that I use all the time. Oh, your face is very loud right now. What is it you're thinking? Get this stuff on the table and make it okay to say. Those are all aspects of healthy conflict. Another one is as soon as people start to get heated, because exactly to your point, people feel strongly about the work they're dedicated to and they want to take a stand. You can ask people if they're actually upset about it or are just excited, you know, that kind of thing. You can also take breaks. Oh, we've come to a wonderful point in the discussion. Steve and Jill are really feeling strongly about this. I can see this is a great time for a coffee break. Let's all think a little bit and then we'll come back together and pick it up again. Let people cool off, that's, an, that's another great thing. Should I keep giving you more? I can give you more or we can go on to the bad stuff.
0: No, I mean those are great tips. So I, I think, and and we we could go on. That's and that's fine. Um, I, I'm wondering though, I, perhaps you have some some sanitized stories you can tell. Obviously, you don't want to divulge anything you're not supposed to divulge. Um, you, you know, use pseudonyms. Uh, you don't need to say the name of the organization. Um, but what are some of the types of things that you've seen that have cropped up in organizations? And I'm sus- I suspect that you probably see the similar types of things um, come up again and again and again. Um, so if you can think of any examples of some of that unhealthy types of conflict that might emerge and what you've been able to do as you go in and help um, those leaders deal with that situation.
1: Okay, I'm going to break them into two big buckets. This is overgeneralized, but it's useful for thinking about it there are kinds of conflict that underneath are really structural. Those are like sales and operations kinds of conflicts where people's compensation may be different. Their goals may be different. Their whole purpose for life may feel very different to them from conflicts that are actually because of people's explicit behavior and relationship. So, One example of the structural kind of conflict, I worked with a client where two work groups really were like opposing nation states. Um, This happens all the time when you have a workforce or offices not all in the same place. They called each other by the name of the town they were in. It was as if the entire population of the town in one place was against everybody in the other place. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even about the work. it It just sounded it sounded like a war. Um, it took us a very long time because that doesn't happen in two weeks. That's the kind of thing that happens over years of repetitive slights, miscommunications, misunderstandings, not caring, that's a long time coming. And so when that kind of thing happens, you really have to do a lot of probing to find out what's the nature of the work. What are the rules, some explicit, some implicit that people are believing and standing by without even checking to see if they're realistic or practical anymore. Uh, Old habits die hard. And these things can be so pervasive that the original conflict can have been between people and groups that have long been retired, gone, nobody even remembers them. But the behaviors and the feelings are transferred down the work generations. So that's one kind of thing. And digging into that and really examining work process and making the goals explicit is very important. You do a lot of mapping, a lot of whiteboard work in that kind of thing. And then you can eventually there also get to the relational and interpersonal items. And then you have the stuff that is really about relationship. Sometimes it's because a person behaves badly. There are people who have, I will call them bad interpersonal habits where for whatever reason, the way they were raised, what happened in their first two jobs, they treat other people with disdain in some way, either because they make faces, the way we talked about before, or they don't have the time to hear them out, or they say things like, well, thanks, but that's not the direction we're going in. All of that says to the other people, you don't matter. So then if they want to bring you an opinion, it's almost like they have to strap their gun belt on just to feel confident enough to come in and talk to you about it. So they're too heated, too assumptive, sometimes too grandiose. And then the people think, I have to deal with this kind of behavior, that's ridiculous. And they're not even listening for what's the content, what's really happening there. In those kinds of situations, this is very, very tricky because of course people feel strongly about themselves and their own behaviors the same way they do about their job content. So you really have to talk to them about what they're trying to accomplish. And in those situations, there are a couple of things that can be very helpful. One is a warning. Don't send them off to work things out by themselves. This is like sending two siblings back to work it out by themselves and the stronger one will usually win or the one who knows how to be meaner, you know, whatever it is in that family. If they could work it out by themselves, they would be doing it. So it is leadership's responsibility to help. But if leadership can't figure it out or leadership is part of the situation, then you need a facilitator and sometimes you can have that internally. Often there's someone in human resources who's trained in that sort of thing or there's someone who is just good at the equivalent of running a panel discussion, not necessarily a peacemaker. We don't want everybody to feel they need to be quiet and accept. We really want to get the views out, but What's important for the facilitator, and this is the second big warning, do not treat yourself like Switzerland and you first go to one of the warring parties and you make nice and you learn, and then you go to the other warring party and you make nice and you learn. You can't then distribute your conclusions and think that will work. You have to have the two parties together. And the goal is to help them learn how to speak differently to each other so that they can do it when you're not there.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, those those are great uh, examples. And the the types of structural, systematic types of frustrations and conflict that can emerge and that just seem to perpetuate themselves, right? Um, right. And, and then uh, really these these interpersonal types of uh, behaviors that can also lead to conflict. Uh, the bottom line is that as leaders, even if we have like the best people, the best team, you know, we, we have uh, people who care about the work, they, they share the purpose, they share the vision, um, they're competent uh, experts in their areas. Um, even when all of that is the case, um, we should hope that there will be some level of conflict. You know, I'm always really wary of, um, when, when you go into an organization and everyone's just, you you don't see any pushback. Right. right? And people are just, um, collegial, um, you know, collegiality is important, but passive aggressiveness is, is not helpful or healthy. And, and so that's one thing I see a lot is it, you know, on the surface, you don't see conflict, right? right? Because people feel like that's not socially acceptable. Um, and so everyone smiles and everything, but then, you know, behind the scenes, that's where they undermine you or or whatever. And so the conflict is hidden. That's the really dangerous type of conflict, I think. And and really, I think it just comes down to reframing our understanding of the role and importance of difference of opinion, um, safety, a safety culture where people can speak up and feel um not only like their views are welcome but encouraged uh and and to recognize that it's it's okay like i would way rather have someone challenge me directly in a meeting than nod their head smile at me say yes and then leave the meeting and then go behind my back right um and so that's what we have to be really careful of when we're dealing with uh, these types of workplace situations
1: yeah it's really a tough thing because Of course, we want people to treat each other well, but if there's a perception that we have to be nice, that can undermine being truthful. If the intention is we never want to upset or ruffle anyone's feathers, and I'm not suggesting that we want to ruffle feathers. But what we want is an open and candid conversation so that everybody has the information they need to participate from their best expertise in the discussion. The other thing that's really important is it has to be clear whose decision is it? When the dust settles, are you operating on a consensus or democratic kind of model where it's a question of the votes and everybody needs to agree? Or is it really up to a leader to call the final shot if it doesn't sort itself out? Knowing that can be extremely helpful. One of the worst things are those leaders who change their mind based on whoever the last person in their office was, we all know one of those, or who um, say, oh, that's such a good point, we're gonna have to do that, send you on your way, and then say to the next person, oh, that's such a good point, we're gonna have to do that, and then both those people see each other in a different meeting, and believe they have been given direction to take action, that's the worst. So it really is a responsibility of leadership and a dereliction in duty if leaders are not clear about what really has to happen. There, um, I think it was FDR who had a theory of management called creative competition And he would assign multiple people to the same thing without telling them. And his idea, and there's merit in the idea, was then he would get back these different solutions and he'd be able to choose and it would be great. But because they didn't know, oh my goodness, they would all get mad at each other. (laughs) There's no reason to create extra conflict. That gets unhealthy. But exactly to your point, the passive aggressive kind, that goes malignant. And it eventually, if it doesn't kill the entire organization, it can kill off the zest and purposefulness of entire work groups. And that's when you see a kind of stasis and complacency and lack of progress altogether. Terrible, terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Liz, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, the time has flown by. We've really just scratched the surface. Uh, there's so much more that we could really discuss here. Um, as we close, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can uh, get connected with you uh, and just give us the last word.
1: That's very kind. Uh, the best place to find me is at my website, www.lizkislick.com. That's L-I-Z-K-I-S as in Sam, L-I-K. And there you can find the TEDx on conflict. And also your listeners may be interested. There's a free ebook there that deals with the interpersonal aspects of conflict and so many blogs and articles, loads of material. Uh, They can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, Liz Kislik again. And I guess the last thing I would say is that when you find yourself in the midst of a conflict, get curious about why does the other person think that? And why am I reacting? And call for a break if you need it to sort yourself out. But if you are curious, you're open. You can't be as defensive when you're wondering. So that's just a way to start making it a more productive conversation instead of feeling like it's a battle.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Liz. It's been a real pleasure. I hope listeners will reach out, get connected, uh, check out the ebook, uh, check out Liz's website. Um, And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. I hope you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.